Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maenan to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helketh Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group, and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? 
And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would, have, would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Father, you are our light, and without you we can see nothing. You are life, and if you do not sustain our life and give us life, not only can we not see, but we cannot, cannot hear, perceive, think, nothing. And so we, would pray, we pray that you would stream into us this morning life and light, understanding, knowledge, union with your will. And I pray that you would do these things as you speak to us through your word this morning. Help us to see in this unfolding drama of 2 Samuel 2 the great glories in which we live today. Help us to see. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read something from the prophet Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we look at Second Samuel 2 today, there is certainly high drama happening. And I want to unpack it for you. I want to draw your attention to certain elements of it. I want you to see especially that David did not grasp at the throne. He did not think it's something that he needed to, to possess or to take. Rather, he desired with all of his heart that he would receive it from the Lord. That God would bring it to him in his own time. And secondly, we will see that God does give the throne to David, but he gives it to, to David through a process, perhaps not like many would expect. And in all these things, David prefigures Jesus. We've been seeing that again and again as we've studied the life of David, but the way he prefigures Jesus today is especially pertinent to what we're living in the middle of. Last week, we were in, in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and there we learned the heavy news of Saul's death and Jonathan's death, both killed in battle. And so last week, as this 
news came to David, we were washed with his words of mourning, of sadness, of great grief. And through many tears, he leads Judah and all of Israel in grieving the loss of Yahweh's anointed. Saul was Yahweh's anointed, the hope of Israel. But David is also Yahweh's anointed. He was anointed after Yahweh had rejected Saul because Saul became rebellious and he wanted to do what he wanted to do rather than what God wanted to do. He listened to the voice of the people rather than the voice of God. And for these things, Saul was rejected. But David, altogether different, a man after God's own heart. And so with Saul dead, David now actively steps into the role that God has anointed him for. And this is an act of obedience for David. This is his calling, his destiny, if you will. He must move into this role. Even still, he's not grasping at it. He's not forcing it. He could have. Though he is a man of action and incredible bravery, though he is a warrior, David patiently, resolutely waits for Yahweh to give him what Yahweh has promised. Chapter 2 of 2 Samuel starts out with David seeking God's counsel on how he should proceed into this promised kingdom. That's what he's doing right there in verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So if it's not clear, when David prays that prayer, when he confers with the Lord, when he hears from the Lord, he's still in Ziklag, that Philistine city that he's been sojourning in for many years. We're not sure how long. And some time has passed since Saul's death, some indefinite period. But now it's time for action. The time for mourning seems to have passed, that sort of official ceremonial time. So he knows that he must now be obedient to God's promise and begin moving towards that throne in whatever way God would have him, which is the basis of why he's inquiring. You should remember that David is from Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah. He understands that it is to them, to Judah, to his closest kindred that he must go first. And so he says, to, to, which of the tri- or to which of the cities of Judah should I go? He wants God to tell him where he should start. And he will not move. He will not go until he hears from God. Do you ever feel like you're more prone to act before you hear from God? I am. I think, would, would, was that a good choice? I can learn from David. The Lord says, go up to Hebron. Up indeed. Hebron sits about 3,000 feet on top of mountains. It's the highest city in all of Israel. And so he must go up to Hebron. Do you remember Hebron from our study with Abraham? Abraham lived in Hebron for so much of his life. It's where he met God it's where the, the, the sign of circumcision was delivered. It's where he, he first possessed the very first piece of the promised land, a little burial plot. 
blessed Hebron. And in that little burial plot in Hebron, the bones of the patriarchs were buried. Later, after the Israelites begin their conquest of the promised land, Hebron is allotted to Caleb. Do you remember Caleb, one of the two faithful spies? And Caleb is often considered the first prince of Hebron. Not the king, but the first, or sorry, the first prince of Judah. Not the king, but the prince. Blessed Hebron. And it was to Hebron that Yahweh was sending his anointed David. And that is where David's throne would first be established, which is what we see happening starting in verse 2. David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone within his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David's family, his 600-plus soldiers and all of their families, they all move up to Hebron and the surrounding villages around Hebron, which means that David's days of sojourning with the Philistines is over. He is no longer exiled from the people of God. It would have been such a joyful thing for him to come back to his people. And while in Hebron... Notice what verse 4 states. People from all over Judah, they hear that David has come to Hebron, or Hebron, and they all go there. All the people of Judah go to Hebron. And so here's what we see. We don't see David claiming the throne. He's like, I'm here now. Give me the crown. We don't see him making any claim or appealing to some divine right that he should be king. No, the people of Judah come joyfully and they anoint him as king. It is a celebration. It is a joy for Judah to do this. And their anointing merely just affirms the anointing of Yahweh given to David when David was just a teenager. Now, David is the king of Judah. He is the lion of Judah. And here we see the very first fulfillment of a prophecy spoken centuries before from one of the patriarchs. Jacob said, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So for the very first time, a king has come to Judah, or more appropriately, a king has come from Judah. And he, David, this first king, he prefigures the final, ultimate, last king of all kings that would come from Judah. But more on that soon. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you have showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me 
king over them. We didn't look at this particular part of 1 Samuel, but Jabesh-Gilead is a city that has long been loyal to Saul because Saul engaged in a mighty rescue of Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites and delivered the people in, in really an incredible victory. So it's no surprise at all that the men of Jabesh-Gilead are the ones most loyal to Saul. They're the ones who rescued Saul's body from the Philistines so that they could bury that body and honor Saul, honor his legacy. So David hears of that. He hears what good they have done to Saul. And David then honors the people of Jabesh-Gilead. What we read there in verses 4 through 7 is really a public address. It would, have, it would have gone out to all the people far beyond Jabesh-Gilead. And so he's honoring them in this very public way. And, he, and in this, he's praying that Yahweh would bless them, essentially. May, may the Lord bless you for what you have done. And then he promises that he himself, David, king of Judah, will be good to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And then he finishes with this encouragement. Be strong, be courageous, even though your king lay dead. David's king now. King of Judah, but he's not afraid to say it, and he's not afraid of, his, of its implications. Everybody would know what was meant, sort of in the subtext. David is rising to the throne of all Israel. And I think that his public message to the men of Jabesh-Gilead is beginning to show his tact, his strategic wisdom, because he's essentially inviting those, those people from Jabesh-Gilead to join him. He, he's, he's asking for their loyalty. David knows he's going to need the support of the north. He's got it in the south with Judah. He knows he's going to need it from the north, from Saul country. So he doesn't threaten. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't demand. There's no manipulation in these words. He invites. And he beckons. And the implicit promise in David's message to the men of Jabesh-Gilead is that if they pledge their loyalty, to, their loyalty to him, if they trust in David as their king, then the blessing of Yahweh will come upon them. Isn't that what's being said? If you trust me as king, you will be blessed as Yahweh. There's like a, a divine, David's like a divine conduit through which the blessings of Yahweh flow. Does that sound like anybody? That so profoundly prefigures Christ, our king right now, the king of heaven and earth who if we put our trust in him, if we pledge our loyalty to him, then all the blessings of heaven are poured out upon you. But more on that in a bit. So we don't learn if this Saul-loving city does commit its loyalty to David, not here. Instead, what we learn next are of troubles brewing in the north. Verse 8. But, it says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. 
Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time of David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. I don't know if you remember it, but we have met Abner once before in our sermon series on David. He was the one who brought David before Saul after David had slew Goliath. So Abner was Saul's deeply loyal, top military commander, his top general. And, and since the death of Saul, Abner's become something like a Hebrew warlord in the north. And he fancies himself, evidently, as a kingmaker. So we're not told how, but Saul's second oldest son, Ishbosheth, has survived a Philistine invasion. When we read that passage back in uh, 1 Samuel 31, we saw that the sons of Saul were killed in battle along with Saul. But not all of the sons. I guess only those that were in battle. Because here's Ishbosheth having survived. But the northern cities of Israel are overrun with Philistines. They are occupied hostily. So it would seem that Abner engages on this rescue mission. He goes and he finds Ishbosheth, and then he takes him across the Jordan River over to Mahanaim, far away from this Philistine occupation and, notably, far away from David. And notice, Abner alone is the one who appoints Ishbosheth. A single man. Unlike the men of Judah who came to Hebron to crown David, and like David was the people's man as well as God's man, but not in the north, not Ishbosheth, only Abner. It doesn't take a dummy to figure out that if Abner is so powerful, if he's had such, such influence for so long, then a lot of people are going to follow what Abner says, what Abner does. Yet, it would seem as we look at the narrative of 2 Samuel, that Ishbosheth's power was always very limited. His reign was always very limited, mostly constrained to the tribe of Judah, Saul's tribe, Ishbosheth's tribe. Now, just a little note based on those timelines that you see there in verses 10 and 11 and a few others uh, elsewhere, we learn that Ishbosheth isn't crowned king of Israel immediately after his father's death, or even soon after, perhaps of these Philistine complications in the north and some other machinations going on at the time, Ishbosheth is only made king after David has been reigning in Judah for several years. So David's been king for a little bit by the time Abner appoints Ishbosheth. The divide happening. North and south are separating. There's this illegitimate appointment, anointing decision in the north, and then there's this God-fearing south where they have anointed the rightful king. Now, this fracture will heal under David in time, but it foreshadows the coming chasm that will burgeon in the days after Solomon, where Judah and Israel will separate forever, or at least for a long, long time. Only during David's reign and his son Solomon's reign 
Does Israel truly experience unity? And until, without those two kings, they're tribalistic, they're divided, they're warring with one another. And when David comes to the throne for the first time, there is no unity among all Israel. In fact, as we see immediately, David's reign begins with a civil war. It touches off in the city of Gibeon. Verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruai, and the servants of David went out and met him at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Now the story sort of shifts. Abner and Joab are the primary players in this battle of Gibeon. But this is really about the house of Saul, as represented by Abner, and the house of David, as represented by Joab. This ongoing saga that we've been seeing for so long, a saga of conflict between Saul and David, even after Saul's dead, the saga continues. And here in our sermon series, we are introduced to an interesting figure, Joab, one of the major characters in the story of David. So Joab is Abner's counterpart. Joab is David's top military commander. But Joab is different. He's a hard man. Joab is a bulldog, right? He's your guy you put into the fight, and you know he will not have any mercy. The guy is a loose cannon. He proves it again and again. Eventually, it will get him killed. But everybody knows, you do not trifle with Joab. And that's what Abner essentially admits in verse 22. He doesn't want to mess with Abner. Or, sorry, he doesn't want to mess with Joab. Also, I don't know if you knew this, but Joab is David's nephew. Now, the text doesn't tell us why the armies of the north and the armies of the south joined together at Gibeon, but I think there's a pretty reason, a re, we can take a reasonable stab at why they do this. So Gibeon belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, but it's essentially a border town, right? It's right on the border between Benjamin and Judah. So it's very likely that Abner, being the warlord that he is, being the kingmaker that he is, he wants to strengthen his southern border from the perceived threat of David, of Judah. So he takes his army, he takes his men down to Joab to fortify it. Now what happens in times of aggression? Every move is countered with another move, right? Move and counter move, which is likely why David sends Joab north to counter Abner's move into Gideon, or into Gibeon. Abner and Joab, their respective armies, meet on either side of this large pool of water. And you get a kind of a bizarre scene that happens next. Verse 14, And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. 
And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Remember David and Goliath? I referenced them a, that a second time. That was an example of single combat, right? Goliath was fighting for the Philistines. David was fighting for the Israelites. And whatever happened between them was supposed to resolve the conflict. What's happening here is something similar. Not single combat, but it's like group representation. Twelve men from each side to fight to the death. Your version might say compete or even play. It's just a euphemism. No, this was dead serious. They were looking to kill each other. And the scene, the way it's described here, it almost sounds ridiculous. Like they all join up, lift each other's heads, and simultaneously stab. That's that. But it, it certainly wouldn't have played out like that. And it would have been gruesome and horrendous to watch. Terrible struggle. But in the end, 24 men fall, dead or wounded. So there's no definitive victor. No clear outcome. And so verse 17 suggests that immediately after this happens, having no way to decide, fierce battle ensues. Like it explodes from out of that pool. And we learn that David's men gain the upper hand and they rout Abner's men. And already you can see it happening. Ishbosheth is failing, is falling. His army flees before David, for God's hand is with David. And the chaos of battle erupts. Right off go the fleeing Benjaminites. Maybe they've had a head start. But however much of a head start they've had or however fast they are running. And it seems like Abner is a respectable runner. It doesn't matter because there's a man in Joab's ranks who is far faster. Look at verse 18. And the three sons of Zeruai were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner and as he went, he neither turned to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked. Yep, then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt end of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So that's another of David's nephews, Joab's brother, Asahel. And he runs down Abner with apparent ease. And it's pretty clear that not only is Asahel fast, but he's courageous. Right? He's not afraid to run ahead of his own ranks to catch Abner. I mean, he's hot on his heels. But Abner's not very, or Asahel isn't very bright. Because he just outran all of his support. 
And now he's alone with one of the most fearsome warriors in all of Israel. His hunger for glory and his youthful naivety are his undoing. And I think it's, this reminds me of like a Hollywood action scene, you know, a car chase. But here we have a foot chase. And they're right, like Abner in front, Asahel behind. They're sort of yelling back and forth to one another. Abner doesn't seem to recognize who's pursuing him. But Joab and his brothers, Asahel included, have gained a reputation in Israel, apparently. Everybody knows about them. They know about Asahel's speed. And so he calls out, is it you? I don't recognize you, but there's only one person this fast. And it is. That's not good news for Abner. Not because he's afraid of Asahel. So he says, essentially Abner says, go after someone else. Go after that guy over there. I don't want to have to kill you. I will kill you. But I don't want a blood feud with Joab on my head. Twice, Asahel ignores Abner's warnings. He's a strong man, Abner, because with incredible force, as they are running, like I'm imagining full sprint, you know, he's got, Abner's got his spear in his hand. He rams it behind him. Spears are quite long. Right into his stomach. And it bursts out of his back, killing Asahel immediately. And it's interesting that the way the narrative presents it, it doesn't fault Abner for Asahel's death. It really just attributes it to a necessity of battle. Frames it more like Asahel's own foolish fault for running like that, leaving his support, trying, thinking arrogantly that he could do something about Abner. And then when Joab's forces come upon the gruesome scene, it stops them in their tracks. And you know that Joab and Abishai are horrified by what they find. And Joab will not forget it. He will not forget what Abner has done. And yeah, a blood feud has begun. Abner was right. Verse 24, But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more nor did they fight anymore. So Joab, Abishai, the rest of the troops from Judah, they catch up to Abner and the men of Benjamin. But now the men of Benjamin have come to this height, and they've circled themselves up. So Joab's got the numbers, but Abner has the high ground and the advantage. It certainly seems like for either side, victory will only come with much blood. Thus Abner's appeal. 
Shall the sword devour forever? Additionally, Abner cleverly reminds Joab that they're brothers. Right? They're, they're all Israelites. They are all sons of Abraham. Why should we be killing each other? Joab's smart enough to know that Abner's right. We don't need the blood. We don't need to kill our brothers. So he has his men stand down. But for now, Joab will not forget. If you peruse the next chapter of your Bible, you'll see there that Abner defects. So Abner becomes one of David's men, one of his mighty men. Joab learns of this, that it's essentially has just happened. So Joab tricks Abner, come meet with me. And in good faith, Abner comes. And then Joab kills him in cold blood. And it's an outrage to David. It will eventually be the justification for Joab's own execution much, much later under the reign of Solomon. Yeah, Joab was a loose cannon. But for now, to spare the lives of his men and put this behind him, Joab's going to let Abner be. And this all happens in such a way that's not going to tarnish his reputation or Abner's reputation. It allows both parties to save face. And so they, they turn their armies aside and they head home to their opposite corners of Israel, living to fight another day, and neither one claiming any strategic victory over Gibeon. Abandoning the battle, abandoning the point. Verse 29, And Abner and his men went all night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So in the battle of Gibeon, Ishbosheth lost nearly 20 times more men than David. It's a clear sign that the house of Saul was diminishing while the house of David was ascendant which we read in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Saul is diminishing. David is ascendant. There are two things you must see from this narrative. So important. One David did not grasp at the throne. I've said it already. He invites people's loyalty rather than try to force it. He waits for God's will rather than impose his own. And then two, God gives David the throne through a process. It's not an all-at-once-and-done sort of thing. David was anointed as a teenager. Now, all these years later, when he is first crowned, Part of the land of Israel is occupied by enemy Philistines. The people of Israel are all divided, and he's only crowned over Judah, not all of Israel. 
The rest is going to come through a long, painful process. And it will be a gruesome process. Gruesomeness aside, though, I want you to see how that prefigures Jesus and his kingdom so incredibly. I hope you know, I hope it's clear that Jesus did not grasp at his throne. Not demand, not take. You know, Satan tempted him with it once. He said, if you bow down to me, Satan said, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Just look out. Take them all. Jesus says no. Because Jesus was a a man after God's own heart. A man with God's heart. And he lived in perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of death. He could have claimed all the kingdoms of earth and he could have used his power to force every knee to bow before him. But, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. No, Christ does not impose his own will. Rather, he submits to the will of the Father. And he invites our wills to bend our knee. This is a reality so viscerally demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane beneath the shadow of the cross where he submits his will to the Father. And for such humility and obedience, even to the point of death, the Father resurrects his Son and he gives him the name above every name, the highest throne in all existence, in all of heaven and earth. Which is why, just before, day, before Jesus ascends to that throne, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. His words couldn't be more explicit, couldn't be more clear. From the moment of the resurrection, Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. Before him will every knee bow down and tongue confess that he is Lord. And he reigns right now. We are not waiting for his reign. He reigns today as we see written all over the New Testament that he is seated at the right hand of the Father reigning over heaven and earth. And he does not force us or manipulate us or coerce us into loyalty. He beckons us and he He invites us. And how many times have you heard him say, come to me. If you are thirsty, come to me. If you are weary and heavy laden, come to me. If you hunger and thirst, come to me. In 1 and 2 Samuel, we see David again and again proving why he deserved people's loyalty. Ultimately, why he was God's anointed. So, how then, if he prefigures Christ, how does Christ prove to us that we should give him our loyalty? How does he 
How does he make us want to do it, I guess? Because he loved us and he gave himself for us. Because he came to heal the brokenhearted and free the captive and give sight to the blind because he took the punishment for our sins and he turned the wrath of God aside which we were due. He took it, he bore it in our place and by his blood we are now forgiven. And then he defeats our death and rises from the grave securing our eternal life and all of this he does because he is gentle and lowly. This is the news of the gospel. We come to him because he first loved us. And while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And he is the king that our hearts long for. There is no one coming out of Washington like that. Christ has proven more thoroughly, more completely than anyone ever could possibly, that he is the only Lord to, de- to deserve our devotion. And so when we do come to Jesus, I pray that you have, I pray that you do come to Jesus, this magnificent king, wonderful counselor, this prince of peace. As you come to him, you bow your knee. He then takes you up off of your knee he, rise, he lifts you up and he says, be my ambassador. Go into all the nations. And now he's going to use our mouths to extend his invitation. He's going to use our hands to beckon others to come to this great, magnificent king. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us now the ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Jesus was here as a man, living, walking among us, saying, come to me. And now that he has ascended, he uses us to say, come to him. And you see our second point here. But because of these great realities, there is a process underway in which we live. Christ the King, he's already crowned, already anointed, already seated upon the throne. But just as when David came into his throne, he only reigned over a portion of Israel. Though God anointed him as king over all Israel. So Christ, first anointed over, it would seem, a small portion of the earth. A few meager disciples. And yet he's anointed as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords to reign all the earth and all of heaven. And that kingdom is breaking upon the earth through a process, not an all at once and done. It is the will of the Father that the kingdom of his Son expands through the faithful work of the church. 
which is why Jesus told us to go and make disciples, and he called us his ambassadors, and he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. There is a process happening right before our eyes, and as it unfolds, heaven and earth are uniting, and the kingdom of Christ is expanding. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. According to the Father's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You should immediately think, when's the fullness of time? Jesus told us. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There you hear that same gospel spoken from the Savior himself, the Lord himself, that same invitation, the same one that we are to proclaim to the ends of the earth. But you know, when Jesus uttered those words in Mark 1.15, he did it before the cross, before the resurrection, before he had ascended to the throne, before he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. But now he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and sits upon that throne. Therefore, the kingdom of God is not at hand. The kingdom of God is here. So repent and believe in the gospel so that all people would know joy in God. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. That is awesome. As prophesied by Isaiah, the Prince of Peace has come. A son has been given. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Not in all at once and done. An increase that will not stop. Nothing on earth can thwart it. It is growing. It is expanding until the glory of the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea and the passion of Yahweh God Almighty will see it done. Father, we praise you for these awesome glories and that we live in such times of hope. Though it may seem that the world around us burns, no, Christ's kingdom expands Glory unfolds, and you call us up into this incredible conquest of the promised land. Lord, may we be faithful to that. Ambassadors, disciple-makers, lovers of our enemy, helping to meet the needs of the needy. Your hands, your feet, your voice. Thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us, that upon us the light has broken, and to us a son was given, and he loved us, and he died for us. And in his name, the name above all names, we bow our knees and we pray. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Amen.